I'm the HR representative for the White Tower who's got some firm words for Swan Sanchez, Dalen. And I'm your newly accepted Eric. And welcome to Loyal's Book Club, a podcast where we navigate our way through the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. I am your first-time reader. And I'm attempting to master my poker face. Now on to the show. Three episodes. We are now on our third episode. Three is a lucky number. I think that needs to be uh, celebrated. You know, uh, three is a lucky number, and we do have a very uh, lucky boy who gets a bit of a spotlight in this grouping of chapters. I I love it. I absolutely loved how deeper we got into that. Oh, yeah. I think these chapters are some of my... I love in fantasy books when things start coming together, and you see it a lot in these grouping of chapters where all of the character threads are coming together, and... Now it's just, alright, how's everything going to end, you know? Yes, all of my babies have been scattered to the winds for a while, and now they're all meeting back up into another big city, and I'm I'm, 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 I'm getting tingles, Dalen, I really am. You are getting your uh, Taviran sentence. <laughs> you are getting your Taviran tingles. A <laughs> trademark by this podcast. That's our, yeah. that's our, our first merch shirt. <laughs> Oh yeah, Tavarin Tingles. Yeah, <laughs> no way that can be misconstrued as anything else. No, definitely not. There's, there's no, no, no. no double entendre there. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not like the Dark One's tentacles that you uh, said in last week's episode. Oh my God, I did, didn't I? I that's that's some uh, that's some uh, some fodder for for anybody who's an artist out there that wants to draw the Dark One's tentacles. <laughs> I, you know what? I do that. I do that a lot. Where I, I say something that is totally meant to be benign and just out of context, in context, it doesn't matter. It sounds like the worst thing ever. So I, I'm positive I, I will have another one this episode. And you know what? I've just I've accepted my fate. Exactly. We now know what our uh, merch will be. We know what our Patreon tiers will be. Do you want to be a Dark One's Tentacle? Do you want to be a Tavir and Tingle? You know, <laughs> we're really, we're setting up our brand here. And I think I think that's something to be happy for. I think that's something. I, that's something I absolutely that's love that we have production meetings, but we don't, we don't nearly generate as much uh, content and merchandise concepts as we do when we're actually in show and oh, here yeah. doing it. It's where all of our ideas just kind of burst forward, you know? It's true. No, no, it's 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 uh, where the inspiration really takes off. Exactly. And I think we should just dive in. So um, if you're joining us, we will be covering chapters 47 to 50 of The Dragon Reborn. And chapter 47 is called To Race the Shadow. And we are picking up right where we left off. Matt is being escorted out of the palace by Talonvor. And... The whole time, Matt's just waiting for the other shoe to drop that Gabriel is going to go, hey, I know who you really are. You're Tavarin. Stab, stab. Right. And I loved the little bit of uh, back and forth that uh, uh, Talonvor and Matt have as he's being escorted out the gates. You know, do you do you serve more gays and Gabriel and Talonvor just shooting back? I, I serve more gays. And I feel like we're seeing more and more of these dances happening where everybody's sort of playing stuff closer to their chest. And I think it's because a lot of weird stuff is going on and it's happening very fast. (laughs) 
So um, I really liked the interaction with Matt and Talonvor. Like you said, when Talonvor says he is Morghese's man until his death and he'll defend her and all that. And Matt finally holds his tongue and he thinks, I bet Gabriel says the exact same thing. So it's a little like, I think Matt doesn't trust anyone in... uh, the Camelon Palace, only because I think he suspects who else is under uh, Gabriel's influence. You know, anyone could have a dagger waiting for him, especially if they figured out that is Taviran or in some way connected to Elaine, Egwene, and Nynaeve. And so he gets back to the Queen's Blessing. Uh, Basil Gill and Tom are still being old men and playing stones. And we kind of finally get... Um, a bit of backstory to uh, Gabriel's arrival in Camelin. I don't know how much you remember of when Rand and Matt were in Camelin in the first book. It was divided by people who were pro Morghese and then people who think any Aes Sedai involvement has caused a lot of trouble. And a question that I had for you was because Basil Gill kind of tells Matt Oh, yeah, Gabriel just kind of arrived, took Morghese's side while these riots were happening, and now he's in a position of power. He took Elida's seat. Do you think Gabriel had his hand in the riots, or do you think he kind of just let that unfold by itself? Ooh, that that's actually a really good and nuanced question, because you didn't even ask if I thought he was, uh, if he was suspect or, or anything, but... You know what? I actually hadn't thought of that. I I really took it as um, I think he's a puppet. I think he came in at the right time uh, under the right puppet string, under the right circumstances, and was able to achieve that. I think it was just right timing. Uh, and I, I definitely think he's got some some help from some dark friends and stuff. I definitely think he's uh, very much in that camp. But I don't I don't know if he started the riots. It feels like such a human thing to kind of be divided and stuff like that. And I think one of the themes of this book right. is that the darkness that we fight can really find a root in I think, division. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I like where you're going with that. I do think, though, that Gabriel had his hand in starting the riots because I think he could have easily implanted his men into the crowds and kind of said, just start something. You know, that would make sense because the timing that they give on this is like him basically not missing a beat in having his his men inserted into the guard and stuff. So that would make a lot of sense of how fast he was able to mobilize, for sure. And it's funny because Basil Gill is telling Matt, yeah, Gabriel might be from the Two Rivers or somewhere along there. And Matt's like, uh, no, we don't have any lords in the Two Rivers. Maybe he's from Barrelon or somewhere else, but no. So it's this really, like, I, it sets off um, Tom going into his Game of Houses sort of mindset because Tom is the master of Game of Houses, you know? And brief sidebar, George R. R. Martin stole the concept of Game of Thrones from Game of Houses. 
No way. See, I was going to either ask you during this or independently look up the timeline between those books and when they were writing because Stoll there's the some pretty book. obvious parallels. Oh, yeah, Robert Jordan and George R. R. Martin were really close. And so Deus de Mar, the Game of Houses and Wheel of Time, and the Game of Thrones in Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, granted, political maneuvering, it's not strictly Wheel of Time. Uh, it's not original to that, but I think just naming it that. And um, I think the next one was, you'll as you get to know Avienda more, there's a little bit of egret in her. But Wheel of Time did come first. I will say that. For sure. Yeah. And that, that's definitely a uh, an interesting point to bring up because just as I was saying, you know, a couple episodes ago that this feels so inspired from The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, uh, I obviously see how big it is and how big it's getting just where I'm at in the series. It's very obvious that it would inspire other fantasies around it because, you know, Game of Thrones definitely distills that inspiration into its full through line and full theme of like people will just destroy each other in the name of power. But Wheel of yeah. Time definitely, I love that that it's only a small piece of this whole series. Like this is just something that happens in big cities, but it's not the only thing we're talking about here. Oh, for sure. And sort of back to uh, the matter at hand, we get another instance of, bad dreams. This has been a running thing in the past few episodes of when Perrin and co went to easing the badger and Ilian, they were complaining of bad dreams. And now this is another instance of Basil Gill saying he has been having very bad dreams. And so it's a thing of, does that kind of heighten your theory of Gabriel being a forsaken? Or do you think there's one hidden away, just kind of waiting for the trap to spring oh man i mean both those options are so viable uh <laughs> i think i think i gotta call it i think gabriel is is our forsaken i think he's kind of the person front and center in this city pulling the strings uh i will say it is interesting i don't know if we've had this occurrence yet because bad dreams definitely happen but unless i'm mistaken and, and correct me if i'm wrong I believe Basil claims that he and a totally different man had the same dream that he traced a uh, a rumor back to a guy and the guy claimed that it was his own dream. And I'm wondering if everyone's having the same dream and if everyone's being affected kind of the same way within these same city limits. Well, no, I think the example that you're talking about, I believe it's when Tom goes into his Game of Houses sort of mindset, him and Basil begin a plan of trying to get Gabriel killed because Matt tells them about what's going to happen in Tyr. He's going after Elaine. And so Tom kind of springs into action and goes, okay, let's get rid of Gabriel. And, you know, Matt says, what if he takes the throne? He's going to kill more gays to get the throne. He's going to cut his way through. And they say, no, there's no kings in Andor. So there will just be a next in line female relative. But Basil Gill says, start a rumor and just let someone in the inn over here. Because he said he traced a rumor. He told this woman about a dream he had. And then it was brought back to him as someone else from across Camelin, as someone else's dream. Right. Right. So just, just rumor spreading then. Then, you know what? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revert on myself. Uh, 
I don't think Gabriel's a, a forsaken. I think they're a little deeper in there pulling the strings. I definitely think he's a dark friend, though. Uh, def, definitely, he's definitely got that going for him. Gabriel is a dark friend. We're keeping on that theory. So that'll, that'll be my final answer. And so the chapter ends with Matt and Tom going, all right, we're going to leave. There's a town nearby that we can get a boat and that we can make our way down to Tyr. And he gives Basil the coin purse that Gabriel gave him. And he says, these are stakes. Gabriel doesn't know it, but he and I have a wager. And then Matt rolls the dice and he gets five sixes. And he says, and I always win. So I love that moment. I think there's so many great Matt moments in these chapters that I kind of can't wait to discuss with you because I know you are coming around on our little Matt boy. My my idiot nephew. He he will always be that to me, but I, I am becoming rather fond of him, especially in this uh this run. Especially because you can see he cares about his friends, you know? And I think this urgency to get to terms funny because it's I want to get them out of trouble so I don't get in trouble, you know? It's very much let me be a hero. So I don't have to deal with any more things, you know, because he's like, I delivered the letter. I just want to go home, but I will divert my path by going all the way down to Tyr to rescue my friends. And then only then will I go home. Yeah, Matt keeps uh, keeps uh, he keeps to his own pattern of doing things heroically in the name of saving his own skin. Uh, and it's it's kind of funny to me because he definitely has that. You know, I'm not calling him a bad person or anything, but but he is a bit selfish out of all the boys. You know, he, he kind of follows his impulses and whatever he wants to do. He's he's more apt to do it than anyone else. And I'm starting to see the pattern that he keeps disguising all these heroic deeds as saving his own skin when more often than not, uh, he's he's perfectly on the sidelines and not necessarily entangled in the middle of it. I feel like he keeps giving himself excuses to be involved and to be the hero, but really not claiming the mantle or the title of hero or even a good man. I think he's just, ultimately, I think in his heart, he wants to be a wanderer. I think he'd be totally happy, you know, going from end to end, just gambling throughout his life and winning. But he keeps finding himself because of his friends kind of entangled. And I don't think he can get away from it. And I, I love how... I love how ready and unsure he is to that call of heroism. I think it's a very yeah. interesting, nuanced way to really write uh, a heroic storyline for somebody. Even though he says he's no bloody hero. I beg to differ, Matt. I beg to differ. I think one of my favorite things that's been said about Matt and kind of telling about him is when Swan Sanjay meets him in The Great Hunt, she says... I had an uncle who died in a fire trying to save everyone. Where will you be when the flames stand high? And I think it's such an interesting quote that speaks to Matt's character. I feel like when the flames are high, he's usually in the thick of it. You know, with the great at the end of The Great Hunt, he's blowing the horn of Valir. He's constantly throwing himself into danger. So it's very much a hero, but I don't think he will ever admit that he would go crazy mm -hmm. you know we we get a little uh detail too just with that fire metaphor uh it's funny because i i too think he'd be in the thick of the flames i have to make a soft prediction that you know whatever that means if you know and i know it's a metaphor it might not 
actually happened in the text. I could totally see Matt starting that fire himself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, we get a little bit of detail with him and the fireworks that, you know, he's not necessarily a troublemaker so much as he's got this itch that he needs to scratch. He needs to learn how these fireworks yeah. work. And I think that's a very interesting direction to go other than just big red button. I want to push it to, I want to understand the inner workings of this big red button. I think it's, uh, I think it's interesting. It's just a detail that I, I tucked away in my back pocket. I tucked away a couple of details okay. in my back pocket, by the way. <laughs> uh, and that was one of them. All right. All right. So we are leaving Matt and Tom as they go to Tier, as they leave Camelin to go to Tier, and we are now finally getting our first Wonder Girls chapter of the podcast. Um, Wonder Girls, of course, is the fandom nickname for Elaine, Egwene, and Nynaeve, and we are catching up with them on chapter 48, Following the Craft. Uh, any initial thoughts about this chapter? I'm I'm so happy to get back to our Wonder Girls personally. I think yeah. these are written these chapters are written in such a way that we get the inside perspective on you know, even though they're not Aes Sedai themselves quite yet, I know they're they're a little lower ranked, we are seeing them act very much in that way and we kind of get an inside look at the not just the manipulation, but the care, you know, the details that they set to protect themselves. It's a, it's an amazing way uh, because actually after reading this chapter or these two chapters, rather, I actually went back uh, to the first book just to look up some stuff on Moraine, just, you know, kind of now that I understand the inner workings a little bit more. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the layers of, you know, deception, manipulation, string pulling, oh. all in the name of self-preservation, because going back through that, going to the first book and just reading a few chapters, I always thought you know, Moraine was after her treasures and she wanted to gather up her treasures and do what she was going to do with them. Now that the stakes are so much different and so many things have revealed themselves, I realize that so much of it is self-preservation and, you know, in the name of the greater good. So very happy to be back with our Wonder Girls. Very, very happy. For sure. Yeah, no, Moraine has her own way of doing things that on first read come off as very mysterious. We don't know why she's doing this, but kind of what you did looking back, it's really, it helps put things in perspective as, as you kind of know where so far she's going, you know? And with what you were saying about the Wonder Girls kind of being a little bit more ice die, I really agree with you because I saw some, I have two examples that I really liked. Um, Egwene gives false names and that kind of ties into the three oaths and the other example I'll kind of get to later because we got another dream and I kind of wanted to see what you think of uh, each of the, th the things that Egwene sees in her dream. Um, so the first one is a white cloak putting Master Luan in the middle of a tooth trap for bait. Uh, Master Luan was the man Perrin apprenticed under in the two rivers. Yeah, so I saw this as, uh, you know, totally meant for Perrin. I think this is Perrin's storyline to bear is the constant run in with the white cloaks. Um, you know, I, I think if I remember correctly, 
uh, he was trapped with them. And then the Wolf Brothers came and saved him with the group and stuff. And it seems that Perrin has the most uh, uh, close up encounter to the White Cloaks out of everyone, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. And I'm very curious because Master uh, Luan, is that it? Uh, yeah, that's how I'm saying it. So that's how we'll say it. Right on. I, I like it. We're making choices. Oh, yeah. Uh, Master Luan, you know, he always goes back in his thoughts and Perrin seems like he just wants to be a farm boy. He kind of wants, I think out of the three of our boys or hell, even out of the five of our, our, our fielders five, he's the one that wants to go back. He's the one that yearns for a peaceful life, kind of a day to day bore. So I'm wondering if this dream is literal where, you know, they are literally going to bait Perrin with you know, the life he wants or a person that he, he loves and is in danger. Cause I believe Perrin would go out of his way to, you know, protect his friends or anything. So I definitely think we're going to have another run in with the white cloaks. And I think it's going to involve Perrin. First it's, she sees Perrin with a Falcon on his shoulder, which, you know, Zareen. We know Zareen. Oh, yeah, good old Zareen. Yep. And then good old Zareen. And you know, I don't, I don't know, don't know much about her, but I got, I got my eye on her still. Good to have your eye on her. Got to keep an eye out for Zareen, Nur. <laughs> I tried, I tried, man. You know, um, and our last parent symbol is he's having to choose between his axe and the blacksmith's hammer. Yep, and uh, you know what? This this one actually made me a little sad because again, parent yearns for the good life, you know, the boring life. He, I think at heart, he wants to be a blacksmith. He wants to pick up that hammer. But I think, you know, and no, through no fault of his own, I think he's going to take up the axe. Or maybe it's not that simple. And we have a ton more mythos to go through where the hammer isn't just a hammer and the axe isn't just an axe. So I'm leaving that open. But I think this is Perrin's choice, whether to continue on with, you know, this grand adventure he's on that he doesn't necessarily want or to turn back and return to his good life. Although I will say, I don't think there's a good life to return back to. I think they're all in way too far and not everybody's going to get out alive. Ooh. Okay. Hold that thought because I do want to ask about that. But for me, Perrin in his ax and the blacksmith's hammer, it very much what you said but I also feel like it's almost, I don't know, the acts and like choosing to be violent and choosing this new violent way of life that he's had because he left the two rivers. I think that's a decision that he has to make for himself. He's concerned with not becoming too deep into a wolf, becoming a wolf. And I think that scares him a little bit. Yeah, totally. I, you know what? I, I didn't think about that too much. I, I kind of read into it on a macro level, but it could be a very personal, you know, human or animal, you know, that axe kind of symbolizing a fang of a wolf and, you know, blacksmith's hammer literally symbolizing a tool that humans uh, use and stuff that that could be. And you know what? I, I think he's going to struggle against that. And I think it's just absolutely inevitable that he's going to fall to that yeah. uh, animalistic well, also, side. No, it's like the hammer was specifically used to create and to forge while the axe is specifically created to destroy. And so it's this part of him that's saying, 
do I want to continue on this sort of violent path of destruction that could be caused by choosing to go along the wolf brother path, going too deep into the wolf dream, losing myself, becoming like that one man that he saw in that town? Or do I leave it behind, take up the blacksmith's hammer, return to the two rivers and almost, I don't know, forget that this happened? But again, I don't think that can happen. Tavern is too strong, you know? Ugh, our English teachers back in high school would be so proud of us. Oh, yeah. Where is my A on interpretation? <laughs> uh, no, I, I totally agree on? to you. Uh, I agree with you, and I have nothing more to add that would be more eloquent. So I, I just think I agree, and I'm, I am both excited to see more of Perrin and scared for my baby wolf. And so you should be, you know? So you should be scared. You should be scared for <laughs> everyone, Eric. You should be frightened. I really do believe. I don't think anybody's yeah. safe. And I, I love that sense of danger. I love the fact that nobody is guaranteed to get out of this. Not even alive, but whole. Like, I, I think there's so many worse things you can do to a character in literature than just kill them off. You can, there's so much to explore. And I'm I'm afraid, fascinated, and looking forward to it all in, in the same way. Uh, yeah. It's definitely coming back to this series after finishing it for the first time. It's very interesting to see all of the little details and nuances that you miss first reading through the series and especially in this book we didn't get to talk about him a lot but when we did get to see rand and we got those glimpses of what he's going through and then you think about who he was at the start of this series this farm boy this sheep herder who was going to marry a glane and going to live the rest of his life and now He's the dragon reborn. You know, I, I am a sucker for action adventure scenes. Uh, I absolutely love the three to five page spread of like grand battles or, yeah. you know, just those heightened senses of uh, of an encounter or, or combat. And just tacking on to what you said, it is so different from when Rand met his first Trolloc to where he is now, where I think he killed one on accident and like dragged Tam from their farm to, you know, like miles to uh, it's it's insane how much growth has happened in yeah. these pages and we've got so much more to go oh man i'm so afraid but we go next to matt who he's once again she sees him dicing with balsamon and then he she hears him shout i am coming but it sounds like he's saying that directly to Egwene. Yeah, you know, uh, like I said, maybe last episode, maybe the episode before, I, I might just refer to them as in a previous right. episode for my own sake. I I had a theory that Matt's luck was somehow tied up into, you know, some dark ways, some some darkness or something. And I don't know if this chapter really reinforces that or it's giving me a different theory, but I do think it is interesting that he is always with Balsamon, always throwing dice. But this is like the first time he's broken that contact just between him and Balsamon and like has actually like talked straight to Egwene and stuff. And I don't know if that's a reflection on him or her kind of being able to dream a little bit more efficiently. But I, that, that was another detail I tucked away in my pocket. It's a good detail to tuck away. And so we get to see Rand. Um, he is sneaking towards Kalendor uh, with six men and five women either ignoring him or kind of prowling around in the darkness, just watching him. 
Samar beckoning him towards the sword. She takes note, one of these people beckoning him is a man with flaming eyes. Yeah. So, you know, we've got a uh, we've got a very particular number here. Mm-hmm. We've got we've got 11, 6 and 5. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'm uh, uh I'm I'm thinking this has some significance, Dalen. I, I I really am. This is a mm-hmm. uh, yet another detail I I put away in my pocket. Yeah. And I am very happy because at the end of chapter 49, we'll, we'll get to in a bit, we revisit that scene just a little bit and shit hits the fan a little bit but i am thinking that rand is getting manipulated yet again and i I don't even think he i don't even think he quite knows or cares or is in the right state to really you know call these shots for himself yeah but i definitely think he is going to be the uh a bit of an incident into our next oh shit moment (laughs) because it's always rand he's setting these things in motion and this this you know crystal sword uh i think is going to be a big item in this back half that we're covering oh yeah and so sees him with the forsaken the few that remain because two are dead already um and so right she that dream shifts to Rand confronting the Shan Chan and then confronting Egwene and other women that are with Egwene and also a Shan Chan woman. Yeah, you know, I'm uh I'm I'm getting worried for Rand. Uh he was the first the first character I was going to put money on as being our hero and kind of, you know, thinking that's that's a me avatar like I I loved uh, you know, putting Rand as myself and his perspective and stuff, but you know, he's getting further away, especially just the style of these books with getting so many different perspectives. And it's not just about one character. It's about all of their threads and how they interact and weave in and out of each other. And I'm getting worried a little bit for Rand because I'm not seeing him as the biggest player in the bunch anymore. I'm actually thinking this, this might be a soft prediction. I think he might get stilled. Ooh. You know, I think they're going to take that on themselves to, hunt Rand down a bit and steal him. And I, I don't even think they quite know that they're going to do that yet, but I, I do think that's going to happen. That is interesting. It's, it's so great watching your face because nothing, nothing happens. You got a great poker face, but your eyes light up. And I don't know if it's because I'm right because I'm wrong or because that's just a very interesting theory. And I'm writing a whole new book series on my own. (laughs) It's, you know, that those are words that you have said. And <laughs> I have some words for you. Read and find out. <laughs> ah, damn it. Yeah. yeah, it's true. But that's that's what I that's what I kind of see happening. You know, these dream sequences are happening. And it's it's so cool to not just get a dream sequence where again, we're getting a, a basically a, a glorified monologue, we're getting clues, we're getting foreshadowing, there's stuff that's going to come and, and people are yeah. in danger. I, I love it. It's so oh, yeah. immediate. It's like you said earlier, no one's safe. And the Wonder Girls are especially not safe in Tyr because they get off the boat finally and Egwene sees the Stone of Tyr, which is this just massive fortress that Elaine says was made from the power after the breaking of the world. Such a cool bit of history. Just such a cool, cool little bit of of the city's culture and and its place in history. I, I loved it. Oh, yeah. No, Robert Jordan does such a great job of 
doing a little bit of mini world building whenever we get to a new location. And he does it in such a simple way by, you know, describing how everyone dresses and especially the little platform shoes that they wear to get through the mud. Just little things like that where you're like, oh, okay. It's a hallmark of the series because you can instantly tell where a character's from by the way they're dressed, their hairstyle, their beard is styled, how they talk, their specific sort of dialects that are attributed to each sort of main culture within the Wheel of Time. And I am very grateful for those details because I was totally ready for Tyr to be another city that kind of got lost in the shuffle of all the ones that I have, you know, kind of on the back wall already. But you're absolutely right. There are just fine details that really set it apart. And all these cities have different personalities. And I'm, I'm so grateful just as a reader because I love a rich world and, you know, a rich world to travel in. But if I can't tell the cities and the places apart, it just feels like noise. <laughs> so I'm really excited that, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got a fair bit of, oh, no, this city is like this, that city is like that, and et, et cetera. Every city feels distinct. And I think, you know, with a series like this, it could be so easy that one big city turns into another. You know, Camelin is the same as Kyrian, is the same as Falm, is the same as Ilian, is the same as Tyr, you know, but they're so distinctly different and so distinctly unique. So the girls are in Tyr and they learn that there's a bit of a stigma with Aes Sedai there, so they kind of realize they have to be a bit more covert in their hunting of the Black Aja. That, it's, it's something that I've been thinking about where I'm like, these three girls who have little to no experience in the tower have been sent out to hunt 13 dangerous women. You know, it's, I believe in them. I think they'll do well. But you're also just reading these chapters like, oh my God, they, how are they going to do this? You know? You know, uh, exactly. And funny enough, in this chapter, we see just how capable they are. One thing that had me worried about this chapter actually was I could totally see this as them, this is like the start of them breaking up the band or they are strengthening their bonds as a trio. I see it going either way. But, you know, there's some stuff happening here that that kind of made me go, hmm, oh, I don't know if they're going to be friends forever anymore. <laughs> oh, do you mean with uh, Nynaeve and Egwene? Yeah, I, I'm starting to see a split there. You know, Nynaeve really kind of takes it on herself to be the self-appointed leader, more or less. And I think that's just from her wisdom background. You know, I think she naturally kind of takes that role onto herself. But, you know, she's she's not letting the other girls in the loop and Egwene at least isn't digging it. You know, she kind of keeps her own thoughts to herself. She, she really kind of frames her, her uh, responses in such a way that's like, well, I don't want her to know what I'm thinking or something. So I'm wondering if, if if this is about, you know, some friction starting. Uh, And thankfully, you know, we, we meet another wisdom who has a funny, enough tale of how she takes care of people in arguments. And I think that broke the tension. I really hope that it, that we're okay, but I, I see something happening here. Yeah. Well, um, just to kind of go back a bit, I think 
with that tension between Egwene and Nynaeve, it all stems from Nynaeve raised Egwene, Perrin, Matt, and Rand, essentially. She has seen them grow up into these, to the young people that they are, and she lost them to Moraine and Lan, so she chased after them. And I think that's always kind of been why Nynaeve acts as she does, is because if they got hurt, it would be her fault. And I think it's kind of bearing down on her, on her the pressure of, I can't channel unless I'm angry. Matt is dying somewhere. I don't know if he's okay. Perrin's eyes are suddenly gold. What's that about? Rand is the dragon reborn. And I think it hits her even more with what happened to Egwene with the Sean Chan because she saw how much that really, really broke Egwene. And you see the effect of that whenever we get an Egwene POV. She's has a lot of trauma from that, you know. She keeps saying to herself, I will not be captured again. And I think Nynaeve kind of doubles down on this. I have to take charge. You all are children. Because, you know, she's 25 and Egwene and Elaine are only 17. So I think there is this kind of like, no, no, no. Let me take charge and we'll go and we'll take care of this together. But I did love. Nynaeve and Mother Gwenna kind of going back and forth about, okay, what herb does this? What do you do for this? Like, just back and forth, this, like, tennis match. And I just love Elaine and Egwene just watching this, getting increasingly bored with it, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and she has a great line of, you know, I love to learn. I remember when you were like that, too. And, you know, I don't think there's any big implications about that, but it is funny that you know we have these knowledge hungry girls uh you know Egwene especially but if it's not necessarily in her realm or in her sphere she doesn't care too much for it um here's a prediction I just came up with because of what you said with the with the Sean Chan and everything I am predicting Egwene is going to do something massively violent I could picture the same fire that Maureen used a few chapters ago something bad, something bad, violent and aggressive under the name of like righteousness and and justice. I I see something like that happening in the future. Okay. Against the Sean Chan, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think she's going to get some, uh, some straight up revenge. Okay. I would like to see it. We'll pocket that. (laughs) Yeah. I think we'd all like to see it, you know, (laughs) but yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, this was so cool. And I just want to put this out there. I really, really dug how we, we met another wisdom. That's so cool. That that's so cool. And it's so cool because the first time we meet, you know, uh, naive as the wisdom, she's, she's very gifted. And we didn't know that was because of her being able to tap into, you know, the, 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 the source. That's what they call it. Right. The true power. Help, help me out here. The one power. The one power, yes. Because, you know, she was a very capable wisdom, but a lot of that came from her tapping into that. And I love, love the detail that she asks about the weather and the other wisdom just says, I'm I'm not, I don't do that. Like, that's that's yeah. not a wisdom thing. I love that detail. And I just wanted to put that out there because, again, that micro world building where we have rules in place, I'm just such a sucker for. I love it. Oh, yeah. So going back to our earlier discussion about um, the girl's being more Aes Sedai-ish, 
I found a line that I went, oh, oh, I got it. Um, so they get there. Mother Gwen is kind of like, all right, cut the shit. What are you doing here? You know? And Nynaeve tells Mother Gwenna that things were stolen from their mother. And uh, there is a double meaning to that as um, she, yes, things were stolen uh, from their mother, but they were stolen from Swan Sanche, who they call mother, you know? So it was just this thing of, oh, the Aes Sedai double talk almost of... um, like how Moraine said, you may call me Lady Alice. It's not telling the exact truth, but a truth that kind of skirts around it, you know? Oh, absolutely. And and like I said, I, I love that we're kind of being let into the perspective of the Aes Sedai way. And it just has so many implications looking back at isolated chapters a little bit back away in the books. Uh, but no, you're exactly right. They are... You know, it is funny that they are just three girls sent to capture these 13 women, but they get so many chances to really shine and show how capable and how apt and kind of how natural they are at it. And I'm wondering, because it has been stated before that, you know, periods of time come and go where Taverin and powers kind of heighten in certain at certain times and stuff. I'm wondering if we're kind of seeing some peak players in that power spike a bit. You know, this is going to be history in the making of an age that will, you know, be in many tales in the future. Yeah. Do you think the three girls are in part a little to Varen? Do you think that wore off on them from being with the boys? Or do you think what they're doing is just kind of separate from that? I think... I think Egwene and Nynaeve are. I don't okay. I don't think Elaine is just because I think it goes back to what I said where everybody has threads and they all crisscross each other and her being royalty, you know, and and of the, you know, basically next in line to be queen. I th- I don't think that's necessarily Tavern so much as just her spot in life and her kind of naturally because of that status being around these you know, people. And I think it does go back to the two rivers being an old, old blood back in, you know, history of, of powerful people and warriors and stuff. So I think anyone from the two rivers, for sure. Anyone else, happenstance. Yeah. So we did get a minor, minor note from Zul, who said, if the girls were to Viren, Swan would have seen it with her talent. So Well, take that off the table then. Yeah. Take, 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 everything, take everything I said off the table, please. <laughs> <laughs> they might not be completely to Varen, but I think there is just maybe like maybe a little pinprick of sometimes the wheel kind of bends for them, or maybe it's just a fun little theory, you know? Um, Either way, one of the big themes of the book that I'm picking up on so far is we each have our thread and we don't know which way it's going to weave, but it will weave together with other threads. So yeah, they definitely will be around for the long haul, I imagine. For sure. And so just to get to the end of chapter 48, the tension between Nynaeve and Egwene kind of reaches a boiling point um, after Nynaeve explains to Mother Gwena what's going on. Egwene just kind of turns around and goes, you're getting just as good as being manipulative as Moraine. And Nynaeve visibly pales. And then Elaine just sort of slaps Egwene across the face and is like, too far. 
you know, and I think it's such a great moment from Elaine who, for the most part in their interactions has tried to somewhat play the peacemaker or try to be a neutral party. And I think this is the first time we've really seen Elaine kind of snap on them. You know, I think it's one of my favorite sort of just her little comments underneath all of this is can we just not do this right now. Yeah, she she definitely mediates more than anything in the previous chapters, and I do think there was a bit of a of a of a shading in this uh, in these recent chapters that Elaine is sort of siding with with Nynaeve a little bit, and I'm wondering if again I don't know if this trio is going to remain a trio forever, or I don't know if these are kind of the the beginning cracks, and you know they might have their own paths they walk. Yeah, the wheel weaves as the wheel wills, you know. Oh, say it again. I think, though... <laughs> oh, you literally do not want to say it again. Oh, you know, you can if you want. The wheel weaves as the wheel wills. Dun, dun, dun. Now five times fast. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, yeah, but, you know, I think the other interesting thing about this chapters, and, you know, I, I guess as a disclaimer, this is from my perspective as a man, but I like getting into the perspective of a woman. And I like, I like, I like us having a little bit of girl talk over tea. I like the observations from the other wisdom of like, yeah. men are good oh, yeah. for labor the the head, and kissing women occasionally. And sometimes, you know, being a warrior if you need one. So, so get yourself a man for, for those reasons. I, I, I read it and I just went, Oh, that's, that's me. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes that's all you need a man for, honestly. You are right that men are only good for a few things, and it turns out they will need him for that other thing because they need a thief catcher because they realize we can't just go wandering around the city. The Black Aja, Leandrin, and all of them, they know what we look like. So uh, that takes us over into Chapter 49, A Storm and Tear, where we get introduced to our thief catcher, Julian Sandar. Uh, any thoughts on him? Any initial impressions? Conceptually, I love the idea of a thief catcher. I love the idea of, you know, b- basically yeah. a bounty hunter, you know, but instead of, uh, instead of bail, it, it's, you know, somebody took something for you. I'll, I'll, I'll get it back or identify the person. I love that detail in the world. I love it. I've got a feeling, I've got a feeling, not a prediction, just a feeling that I shouldn't get too attached to Julian. He is so yeah. cool. He is so professional. And I love the details surrounding him of like, you know, taking in the descriptions and them being pretty confident. He could just rattle it back to them. I love that he, you know, doesn't have a sword, but basically claims you can be just as dangerous with a staff and stuff. And we've seen Matt work yeah. a staff. Hey, oh, there it oh, is. Yeah. That's the benign thing <laughs> I, I, I said that can just contextually be taken out of. But I, Matt, I got a Matt feeling that <laughs> that's another shirt for us. Yeah, I've got a feeling, though, Julian is going to find who we are looking for, and it is not going to be good news for him. I've just got a feeling. Interesting. But I think he's capable. I think he's going to help our, our wonder trio. I, I think it's going to work out fine in that regard. Right. So he's kind of like a red shirt almost. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I I think that's a perfect description. 
And it is because, you know, nobody is safe in this series. And not only that, everybody, even if they're a minor character, gets the same amount of description. So you know exactly who they are, what they are doing and stuff. But even if they're not a main character, it's like we're either definitely going to see them again or it was just a rich literature painting of, of this of this part we're on. Yeah. But he is. He's a, he's a rich man. There was a detail that Julian mentions when he kind of first comes in. He says, yeah, things are kind of weird right now. He's noticed that at night he's been seeing men on the roofs of houses. He thinks that they are just regular thieves and he thinks he's going to get some work soon. I'm calling it now. Those are dark friends. Okay. So do you think the dark friends kind of suspect that there's something going down in tier and to keep a lookout at the stone of tier? Absolutely. I think because tier is now become the centerpiece where all of our threads have lined up right. in this little grouping of chapters some big stuff is happening. A storm starts when everybody kind of comes together that we get to in a little bit. And, you know, we haven't seen Rand in a while, but we know that we're hot on his trail. We're going after him. And that guy is like the biggest flame if all these dark friends were moths. So I think it's all going to go down in tier. I'm actually kind of sad our grouping of chapters ended where it did because it was like, oh, no, some some S is about to go down. Oh, yeah. Um, so ending the Egwene section of this chapter, uh, she goes into Teleran Riyadh, and she first finds herself in a field, and then you kind of start to see her starting to get a hold of using uh, Syedine to work Teleran Riyadh, and she ends up in the chamber where Kalindor is, and who happens to be there but the 13 Black Aja. And it's such a great moment because Leandrin sees her, makes direct eye contact with her, and smiles. And then Egwene immediately wakes up and tells Elaine and Nynaeve they know where we are. You know what? I, I So two details um, I, I noticed here in my back pocket. My back pocket is full of details I'm catching on now. One is exactly that. Egwene is understanding kind of the rules of the world and being able to tap into it a little bit easier. Um, and I, I actually really appreciate and respect that she admits that she probably only understands a tenth at best of what's going on and that she has to be careful. I love that we're getting little bits of crumbs of, you know, these very specific things our characters can do. And, and the dreamer is probably one of my favorite things, honestly. The other thing I noticed was our Black Aja is surrounding the same item and the same, you know, man that our Forsaken were a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. Now, don't have any predictions because I could see this going any which way, but hear my, hear my feelings a little bit. We either have in competition the Black Aja and the Forsaken, you know, actually like competing against each other to for more power. I could see some of the darker Aes Sedai trying to essentially overthrow everything in their name. Interesting. Uh, or, you know, because they weren't integrated together. They were very much separate circles at different times, and we saw them through different perspectives. You know, so I think the fact that they aren't as interlaced as we thought they were, I think we have a bit of a, you know, internal power struggle. I do think... If you're a dark friend, or not even a dark friend, but if you're kind of a high-ranking 
member of the shadow, you're playing it for yourself a little bit and everyone's trying to get ahead. And then yeah. finally, uh, this might act- eventually. Exactly. It's a, it's a dog eat dog world in the shadows. And then finally, I think this might be a third detail uh, that I noticed, or, or I might've lumped it in with her dreaming. I don't know whether or not, I think it's one of two things. Either Egwene ended the dream herself and she's never been able to do that before, kind of marking that she's getting some more experience in that world, or Leandrin pushed her out of that dream. And that is kind of a scary thought because even though we've seen how natural they are, how apt, how capable, they are still absolutely the underdogs. You know, they they really shouldn't have a chance in hell at pulling off this mission. And and that little detail there made me very scared for our girls. Yeah, it's again, that thing of no one is safe. Every time you think, oh, they have some firm footing on the ground, the table is kicked underneath them. And I think I like that theory that Leandrin did kick Egwene out of the dream. It's just another thing of it shows that the Black Aja are just as big of a threat as the Forsaken, you know? Like, they have sworn to the dark and so you know i am curious to see if there does end up being a 13 uh black sisters versus the 11 forsaken but we are going to move into the adventures of idiot nephew and cool uncle as they arrive in tier <laughs> right it was one of my favorite details as matt is searching for the girls and they specifically mention Mother Gwena's house. Like, he sees the house with the herbs hanging in the window, and they're like, all right, let's go find it in. It's so funny how they are so closely tied to each other. Like, earlier in the last chapter, um, Egwene says, I wanted to stop off in this one town, and that one town that she wanted to stop in is the very town Tom and Matt left from to go to Tyr. So it's these instances of they're so close together, but they always just veer apart. And I think that's such an interesting uh, detail to pick up on, you know? Um, So they end up going through nearly two dozen inns trying to search for the man Gabriel had hired to kill Elaine. And we find out his name is uh, Komar. I don't know if that's how it's actually pronounced, but we're going to say Komar. Mm -hmm. Yep. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. I think it's when in doubt. Omar. That's that's what I went with. Yeah, that's what I went with. Yeah. We're making decisions. We're, <laughs> we're making choices. You know what? So is Matt, because they find out Omar's been uh, cheating at dice. He's been using weighted dice. And it's a, it's one of my favorite Matt scenes. It's because you see, oh. finally, the weaving of the pattern kind of around the dice. And so Matt goes to confront Komar. He dices and he work and the he describes the pattern working, weaving through the dice is faces up to all crowns. And it's such a great like, ooh, you know, Matt is my he officially at this part. And I think this is why I'm coming around on him and, and kind of getting fond of him again. He is our always sunny in Philadelphia. Charlie Day wild card. I love Love that he's starting to recognize, you know, if he plays stones with Tom, uh, the luck doesn't work with him. When you have to think ahead and make decisions, he is a in the moment, random chance kind of guy. And 
him understanding that yes. in this chapter is such a cool such a cool way that he's kind of accepted even further of who he is supposed to be. I feel like every like he either something works out in his favor and then something and then he reaches a dead end if that makes sense, you know. He he manages to find the man who's going to kill Elaine. He kills him but then finds out he wasn't the only threat, you know. Right. And nor should we at least as the reader be surprised by that because there are so many strings in the dark. There are so many so many buttons being pushed <laughs> that yeah. as soon as he said that, I was like, well, of, of course, of course, it's not going to be that easy. It, it'll never be that easy. <laughs> yeah. And so that chapter ends with Matt having a dream of a man with short white hair, weaving a net around Elaine, Nynaeve and Egwene. And then it's the same man weaving the same net around Moraine. And then the white-haired man holding Kalimdor, and then it's Rand holding Kalimdor. So, what do you think? I think we've got a glimpse at a Forsaken that we are going to meet in a little bit, and I think they are bad news bears. I think we're going to have a bit of a showdown, and surprise, surprise, I think it's going to come down to Rand. <laughs> it always comes down to Rand. It really does. Uh, but that's that's all I got so far, because I was scanning my whole brain of like, did we ever meet a guy with short white hair? And I really am not recalling anybody. And I didn't want to cheat and look at the wiki or anything. So I think we have a forsaken. You should never look at the wiki. As a first time reader, never Google anything, because <laughs> it'll come up. You could Google something and it'll be a massive spoiler. So if you have a question about anything, just text me. Or you can always post in the Wheel of Time spoiler-free channel for the Dragon Reborn, and there will be someone there to answer your question, obviously. We keep it all spoiler-free. Right on. Yeah, so to my memory, then, we haven't met this person. I think they're a Forsaken. I think we're going to have a bit of a showdown. Um, and at the same time, I hope I hope I'm a little wrong or I have or I'm missing some massive details because we are falling into a bit of a pattern of we got to get somewhere, we got to get something, we got to get that something somewhere else, and then we have a showdown. You know, and I don't I don't think it's going to be that black and white for the whole series or anything, but it is a bit of a pattern that we have had at least in the first two books. So I am hoping that I'm missing some details. I'm hoping that, you know, and I, I do feel taken care of as a reader. I do think that these anxieties I have of what's to come are going to be unfounded because the way it shook out even in the last book when it was like, okay, we're going to have a bit of a, we're going to have a bit of a fight, a bit of a showdown happened massively different than I could have ever guessed. So I'm excited for the details that are starting to unravel themselves, but still feeling like, okay, I'm not too sure what this means. Yeah. No, I get what you mean. The format of the first three books is somewhat kind of what kind of the same, um, mostly with the great hunt and the dragon reborn, because it is, for the most part, the characters are separated and then they are reunited for the climax of the book and then they're separated again right. and brought back. This isn't a huge spoiler, but I can tell you that format does get kind of shaken up a little bit. I won't say how, but your fears are uh, well-placed, but it's not going to be every single book is separate together, separate together, separate together, because I think as we get deeper into these books and we see how the wheel is weaving around these people's lives, it's not going to be that simple. But I do want to move on to the last chapter for this episode, 
It's called The Hammer, and we get to go back to your boy, Perrin. My boy, Perrin. My, my wolf brother. I love him. Love him. He's a good boy. He's a good wolf boy. And it's a really interesting chapter for him because he arrives in tier. Now everyone is in tier. All the Emmonsfield five. Oh, also, there was a small detail I forgot to talk to you about. Um, when Matt is in the inn where he kills Komar, the innkeeper tells Matt after Komar is killed that he should go. And he mentions he had a dream of a tall redheaded man with gray eyes and no one thinks he's real. So it's like, a, oh, little mention of, so we know now Rand is officially in tier. Right. And you know what? It is absolutely no surprise that all the threads are leading us back to Rand kind of individually and then we're going to come back together as a group and then we're like i said this grouping of chapters feels like a lead up for some s to go down in tier so now Perrin and co have finally arrived loyal once again he calls zareen fail and that immediately makes Perrin tense because he again you mentioned it i don't think Perrin is an adventure sort of boy i think you know he wants to see his friends safe but i think ultimately he just wants to go home and he has such an aversion to men's viewings you know he doesn't want to believe that serene is his falcon he doesn't want to know who the hawk is and nor does he really want to come across the tuathan with a sword you know mm-hmm. those things seem so impossible to him that he's like maybe they won't happen maybe this is just gonna be Rand's thing and i'm gonna be caught up in the pattern for a little bit but maybe i want to be done with this you know yeah no absolutely and uh you know we we get a bit of that in this chapter we we get to see Perrin in action in the smithy and yeah it is it is such a cool almost like nostalgic adjacent feeling reading that because we get so much of how much he misses home he misses you know working the forge in the smithy and to actually get kind of up close and personal and see him do it it feels so uh so satisfying oh for sure um i just wrote Perrin joins the smithy having to find a vest to fit over his bare chest <laughs> and he works there for a whole day i just love any time robert jordan goes yeah and he had to fit something over his big broad chest i'm like you know who you're writing for, Robert. You know what we want. You know what we want here. And Zareen knows what she wants because she's been watching him, you know? The whole time. She sees that hunky shirtless man and goes, you know what? I don't want to be around that Aes Sedai because R- Moraine isn't the best company right now. She's freaking out and so is uh, Loyal uh, mm-hmm. and Lon. Um, so just real quick, Zareen mentions the stone of tear and she also mentions like the heart of stone and she mentions the prophecies of the dragon which is mentioned intermittently throughout the books the first three books but i pulled a section from the eye of the world tom says this the people of the dragon come to the stone another says the stone will never fall to the sword that cannot be touched is wielded by the dragon's hand Earlier in the book, when we meet Avienda and the Aiel, they mentioned their own prophecies of the Aiel, which Perrin was also told by Gaul. But I'll let you kind of find those when you do a reread, because they're so much fun to find. And it's always this like, oh, 
that's where a piece of the puzzle was. That's exactly right. And I feel like I have so many isolated individual pieces of a puzzle, but I've only found the corner pieces and some of the top line. And I feel like there's so much to fill in. I know there's so much coming and I'm very excited that it's all happening in tier. And so we have another Forsaken. Perrin and Zareen go back into the inn and Lorraine confirms that the lull is in tier. And she says... The Lol is trying to lure Rand to the heart of the stone and take Kalindor and then kill him. And of course, uh, what is Moraine's plan besides let it happen? <laughs> Which, you know, it's smart. It's good. And, and, you know, it's just more power to her in the way that she understands that, you know, whether or not she and company intervene, this is probably going to happen anyways, because the wheel weaves as it will. And so... I love that, you know, again, I just, I believe everything Moraine does because she's been set up so thoroughly as kind of in the pilot seat, kind of eyeballing the pathways and then choosing, not necessarily driving, you know, down those ways or anything, but kind of in a way backseat driving, I think. And I think she's great at that. Oh, yeah. So I have a question for you. Do you still hold to the theory that Moraine is a reformed Forsaken? Yes. Not well. Okay, I, I, I know. I think I know exactly because I, I thought she might have learned that Balefire kind of uh, in a corrupted way or something. I think I said last, and then it's revealed that she just learned it kind of on the on the way. I, you know, I'm getting a little further from that. I do maintain that I think that would be such an interesting character piece to to have that in place. I want it to be true. I'm getting a little bit colder on it though. Yeah, well, I do want to talk about that, but I think it's important for, it's a good theory, don't get me wrong, but I think there's a lot of evidence against it. I think Moraine has really been pushing for Rand to be the Dragon Reborn in a way that will be beneficial to him. Granted, Mm -hmm. she hasn't done it in a way where she's disgusted with him. I think you especially see this in The Great Hunt when she replaces Rand's clothes and she gives him that like very fancy jacket, you know, and that parent and Matt are like, oh, so now you're better than us. And I think it's a thing of Moraine sees this as he kind of has to be my dudes, because <laughs> if I let Rand do as he does right now, he would have walked back to the two rivers and been a sheep herder and brought even more danger to everyone else. Moraine said, I'm going to play a bit of the game of houses a bit and use that Kyrianian thinking. And I just have to push Rand forward because the dragon reborn has to lead. And if he's twiddling his thumbs or kind of hiding and just training with lawn and really not accepting that this is who he has to be, we're screwed, you know? And to that degree, I, I think I can make a almost like a backwards prediction. I guess that's just a realization. I think she let Rand go at the beginning of this book when he, you know, made his way out to escape. I think she was very much in tune with that. I think she knew it was going to happen. I think she absolutely, you know, as she does a lot, gave him the illusion that he was making his own choices, but it was really what she wanted to happen. Interesting. I think I, I, I don't know if I fully agree with that because I think she knew it was going to happen and she couldn't stop it but not in like a, my hands are clean, like as kind of freely as you kind of think it was, if that makes sense. I think it was, he's not going to listen to me. 
Like, you know, I think she's starting to slowly lose her grasp on Rand and trying to control him. And it is that Two River stubbornness where it's just like, the more you try to control someone, the more they'll dig their heels in. And I think Moraine is slowly starting to ease onto it. And I think she's having to abandon that I am Aes Sedai, you will do as I say, because I am who I am, and more, okay, I have to be a kindergarten teacher about this, give you a sticker when you don't destroy something, you know? Mm-hmm, um, yeah. But, so just to kind of wrap this chapter up, just because uh, we're almost towards the end here, Moraine asks Loyal to kind of give as much information about Bilal as humanly possible, and what we find out is Bilal was always envious of Luz Theron and of Ishamael. Um, Ishamael is another Forsaken. And an important nickname, especially moving forward, Bilal was called the Net Weaver. Uh-huh. So, hey, <laughs> so you got two new Forsaken, Ishamael, who is only mentioned in name, and Bilal. So slowly filling up that list, it's. I also think it's strange that we've gotten mostly male forsaken and we only have one female forsaken so far. Well, I think, you know, and it, it is funny that we've kind of been peppering in the differences between men and women throughout this book a bit. Like we get a little bit of the perspective of like men do this, women do that through the different perspectives of characters. Every forsaken we have met, well, probably not, but at least currently in current, are all holding positions of high power and status. They're all high lords, you know, as the men. So I'm wondering if we're going to have a bit of the flip inverse with the women of like, these are, you know, holding positions and statuses that you would never think a Forsaken would, and to that degree works in their favor. Uh, I don't know, but that feels like, you know, that feels like that's where we're headed. And so... Lon and Moraine return to the inn, and they confirm that, no, the men on the roofs are in fact not dark friends, they're Aiel. When they first met the Aiel in The Great Hunt, and especially when we meet Avienda, they talk about one of the prophecies of the Aiel, and it mentions the Stone of Tear and them leaving three fold lands. So we are getting more of the Aiel culture, and... It's something that we'll get to explore more of because I know you love the Aiel. I do. They they are so badass, and I'm so ready for some more some more action in that way. To get to more Aiel action, you'll have to tune in next week where we are going to finish up the Dragon Reborn. That is correct. We are almost done. It is it is crazy to think that we're already kind of wrapping up on this part, and that you know. I'm happy we kind of started a a few books into it because I could totally see this being a bit of a jumping off point where something is going to happen. It's this is like a soft prediction or or a feeling something big is going to happen that is going to change the game as we know it. This book is going to be, I think this book, I know I say it a lot as every time Eric would finish like eye of the world or the great hunt, I would tell him this is the book that sets it all into place every time. But <laughs> honey, you oh, ain't read nothing yet. But I firmly this is believe the that the Dragon Reborn <laughs> is the book that it sets a lot of things into motion, and I'm really excited because 
we'll be starting The Shadow Rising, which is, in my opinion, one of my favorite books in this entire series in a couple of weeks. But we got to finish The Dragon Reborn first. We, we got to finish The Dragon Reborn first. And, and, and to finish it, we will. We leave you all. Eric, of the characters now, who is not going to make it to the last battle? Oh, my God. Um, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Uh, uh, I don't. I, it's so sad because there's there's some I could pick because it makes sense. But I don't want to because I love them. There's some that I. OK, you know what? Lon. Sorry. Uh, I'm putting this in the predictions. Who will not make it to the last battle? Uh, Lon. The last, the last battle being like the the final, uh, like out of everything, oh, or just this book. Uh, the the final book, uh, the last battle, the big the last final. battle in the final book. You know. Oh my god. Okay. Uh, then I have I have three actually because that's that's a lot of uh, people to get to the end of this. I think at some point, Lon, Egwene, and Matt will die. Okay. That's that's kind of what I that's what I feel in my bones. All right, those are some names. That is some prediction, and that is some poker face. Let me let me tell you. Oh yeah. And on that note, thank you all for joining us for another episode of Loyal's Book Club. We really do appreciate y'all hanging out with us and listening to our little show. Where can they find you, Eric? Yeah, if you are on Twitter, you can find me at Viva Ladanes. That is V-I-V-A-L-A-D-A-I-N-S. Twitter is also where you can find me as well. I am Tone underscore Dalen, or you can just find me as the only gay in the two rivers. Um, If you are listening to us, we record live every Friday on our Discord server. We have the link in the bio. And once again, we want to thank you all. And join us next week as we finish up The Dragon Reborn. Yeah, and go ahead and uh, you can catch our uh, past episodes if you subscribe to our podcast. We are on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Uh, Here's to the beginning of the end, my friend. Cheers to that. I just cheers with my mineral water. (laughs) All right. We'll see you guys next week.